Welcome to the F5 podcast series, What Lies Beneath, a deep dive into the technologies, people, and processes that make our digital lives possible. I'm your host, Terry Patrick, and today we're speaking with Andrew Jenkins and Zach Jory from Aspen Mesh about service mesh, what it is, a bit about the history, and what it takes to benefit from it. So let's go ahead and dive in. Um, Andrew and Zach, can you start by giving us a bit of background information about yourselves? Hi, this is uh, Andrew Jenkins. I'm the tech lead for Aspen Mesh. I came to F5 uh, in 2013 via an acquisition of a company called LineRate Systems. Um, and in 2017, I was one of the team members for the kind of original pitch of Aspen Mesh as an incubation project focused on some new emerging patterns for the way microservices communicate. Uh, and I've been working on Aspen Mesh uh, ever since. Hey, Terry, this is Zach Jory. I lead marketing for Aspen Mesh. Uh, I joined about two years ago now, um, directly from IBM, where I held uh, several different roles in offerings management and product marketing around several different industries. I'm focused here at Aspen Mesh on trying to get the good word out about how infrastructure teams can make the way they deliver software much more resilient, observable, and secure with Service Mesh. Right. Okay. Well, let's let's dive in then. Um, so let's start with the basics. What is a Service Mesh? So a Service Mesh, the way that we describe it to, to users, it's a transparent layer of infrastructure that helps microservices communicate with each other. Microservices in particular are all about making a lot of small single purpose things um, and then forming them together through communication and into a larger application. So there's a lot of small things communicating and in particular, some of the kind of the thought leaders on microservices have said that there are some things um, that are even more important to get right in microservices in order to make this all go. Uh, and, you know, like Zach said, that's this like resiliency, observability, security kind of piece here. So as an example, we can start kind of with, with observability. Um, if you think about if you're, if you're not doing microservices, um, then, you know, the, the other kind of dominant pattern here is like a, a, what's called a monolithic application where there's a lot of logic in one running program um, that serves your users. And so it can be easier to get a handle on what's going on in a monolith you just debug it like any other program. When you move to microservices, that communications are happening and processing is happening in a lot of different microservices that then all communicate with each other. And so you need some special tools to be able to understand uh, all the, the, the processing that's happening across these different microservices and, and how they're all communicating with each other. A service mesh is, is an approach to, to sort of offering that observability layer the cool thing about a service mesh in particular is that it's not just that observability, it's all the other pieces, the resiliency and the security in one layer. And that layer is just outside the application, which means that um, teams that adopt service meshes can get the benefits of being able to understand all this communication without having to implement that kind of behavior, the resiliency, observability, security, over and over again in each microservice. Instead, they just know that it's at that layer right beneath their application, and they rely on that layer to take care of those needs for applications. All right. Well, it, because this is a 101 conversation, maybe it would be helpful to go back in history a little bit and talk about what a monolithic application looks like, what kinds of issues um, we were trying to solve 
that led to the move from monolithic to microservices applications and how service mesh compares to what you might have coded directly into the monolithic application. So can, can we step back and maybe like go from 10, 15 years ago to today? You need to have a good reason to do microservices in order for there to be justification to break all of this stuff up. So the shift from monoliths to microservices is driven for me by the need to let application teams move faster by decomposing these large applications into smaller things that individual teams can iterate on more quickly. So um, if you only have one big thing that you deploy, then uh, it's very important to get everything kind of on the truck on that one big thing that you're going to deploy. And it all has to be exactly uh, the same in terms of quality and, and uh, you know, a bunch of other kind of components of the application lifecycle. This is the case when um, your credit card processing is happening in the same application as uh, maybe your recommendations engine. So that means that um, every line of code that you write has to be good enough to have credit card numbers floating around in it or nearby it, at least in the same, same process. Um, and so part of the move to microservices and the most compelling reason I think is if you decompose that, you can be really careful that you get your credit card uh, system right, you get your order processing system right, but you can be a little bit more experimental in the way that you deal with your recommendations engine because it's actually a separate component owned by a separate team uh, delivered separately. If that's important to you, if that's a thing that you need, then um, m the best pattern to sort of achieve that is to do microservices. And so some of the leaders in this space, the web monsters and things like that, they were going towards this microservices and kind of the origin story for service mesh is that everybody kind of looked up and realized there was a similar pattern emerging here. In-house in, in Google, they had a resiliency library for dealing with all the HTTP traffic between all their different services. Twitter had a library called Finagle that did this. Uh, Netflix had a Netflix stack of software with components like Hystrix and things like that that did some of this resiliency and advanced routing and things like that. And so they all said, oh, well, we are all building these libraries into our applications, and we're all assuming that that is always there, common underneath all of our applications. And so what's a little bit different about the, the service mesh pattern uh, is two things. One is the rise of containerization and Kubernetes specifically opens up a couple of new deployment patterns. That means that you have options aside from this built-in library. You can do a couple of other things. Um, and the other one is uh, that unlike Google and Twitter and Netflix that write their entire software stack, essentially all of the applications that they run, every line of code from A to Z in-house, and therefore can say, we are going to write it with this one framework in this one language. Um, the customers that we talk to are different. They are writing things in a bunch of different languages. They may be companies that have you know, other engineering divisions that make their own choices for how they do that infrastructure. And importantly, sometimes they run third-party applications they've purchased or consumed as open source from somewhere outside. So they don't always have the option of building a library into every application, changing that. And so to them, this idea of, hey, maybe because of containers, we can do some different kinds of deployment models to get the service mesh approach without having to modify the application, that was really appealing to them. That's an important part of the way that you use uh, Aspen Mesh. It's this extra container 
creating Kubernetes to run right alongside your application. You don't have to change the application itself. And and clearly people are running Kubernetes without a service mesh. So what, what do you get from a service mesh that you, you can't get natively? You just download and install plain old Kubernetes and run it. Um, Kubernetes will do, um, in my opinion, a great job of scheduling a bunch of applic applications to run. So you say, hey, um, here's, my, here's my credit card uh, processing service. Here's the disk image that you need to run. I need you to run five copies, put them in the best place, and link them all up behind a virtual IP address that, that we can all talk to. Um, and then can you do the same thing for my recommendations engine? Kubernetes will do that for you. When the credit card engine wants to talk to the recommendation engine, Kubernetes will take care of basic IP level connectivity and random load balancing you know, between these different microservices, but it won't do much more than that. So uh, for instance, it won't encrypt traffic between the recommendation engine and the, you know, any other part of the system automatically for you. That might be especially important if you wanna do things like run different components of your application in different clouds, then you know, that kind of encryption and security is really important. It won't do things like let you tap off and look at all of the traffic that's going in and out of the recommendations engine. And it won't do something that we think is really cool, which is distributed tracing, which is, hey, you can watch a request come in from the client. So, you know, you're clicking around in, in the website. We can follow that all the way through all the chain of microservices. So we can say, hey, it went into the product page and the product page had to go check the database to see what recommendations to give you on the whole thing. And then check the stock to see if it's in stock in the store near you or whatever. These can all be different microservices calls and if you want to figure out what happened to your call, if you're an operator of this platform, what you want to be able to do is say, hey, let me go look at, you know, like here's a, a trace that failed for Terry. I want to see all the places it bounced in and out of, and I want to see who was slow, who was fast, and who finally, you know, sort of returned the error. Um, that's kind of part of our observability story. And finally, you know, we only want to send it to the healthiest set of services. Um, we only want to send it to the services that are close by in the same data center for uh, data protection purposes. We wanna make sure that we can retry requests that failed in certain circumstances. That's kind of this resiliency and traffic traffic management layer. Yeah, that's a fantastic explanation. Um, I might sum that up by saying, I think Kubernetes addresses built and deploy issues really well. And when you start to scale out Kubernetes application, there's a lot of runtime issues that are not well addressed by Kubernetes. Things like encryption on the wire, circuit breaking, dynamic traffic routing that you need a service mesh to take care of. Well, and, and I guess uh, following on on that, um, so service mesh becomes appropriate and necessary at a certain scale. So what, what are the indications that um, uh, an application has reached a tipping point where uh, you need to look at a service mesh? Yeah, so for me, I think um, the way I like to sum up service mesh is if you are scaling Kubernetes and you don't want to spend all your time managing Kubernetes as you scale it, then you need a service mesh. I think there's definitely a point you don't need a service mesh. If you're doing an experiment with two services and you're not sure Kubernetes is for you, you should not add a service mesh to that experiment. Um, one of the things we usually tell customers when they ask us this question is, are you all in on Kubernetes? Because if you all are all in and you plan to adopt Kubernetes broadly in the organization or to develop products or applications with, it's a lot easier to get started with service mesh early on than it is to have to bake it in way down the road. 
Well, how would you characterize the maturity of service mesh? In other words, how much engineering sophistication does a customer need to have to make it work versus how much is available within the technology today? When we started Aspen Mesh, there are two public service mesh things um, that, that we looked at uh, kind of as being interesting, Linkerd and, and Istio. And inside of F5, we had our own kind of prototype for some of this stuff called ASP. And um, all of these were, were pretty rough. In the last two years, we've seen a lot of advancement in terms of, of ease of adoption, uh, especially in, when coupled to Kubernetes. And so that, that's a big part of what Zach was talking about. Like, so when you're coupled to Kubernetes and you have applications that are purpose-built for Kubernetes or where you've, you're really decided that you're going to deploy them in Kubernetes, then a lot of the automation for how you attach and consume and use a service mesh, especially Aspen Mesh, uh, gets a lot easier. And so I think that it's going to continue to get easier. We think that it's going to become ready, common sort of pattern that everybody is doing. Right now, I think it's at the stage where if you are not sure about um, how you're going to do your applications and things like that, the first thing you need to do is get applications deployed in Kubernetes. If you find yourself doing things like adding resiliency libraries or trying to figure out how to do mutual TLS encryption, especially with trust domains that span different clusters, I think that you are spending engineering effort you know, one way or the other pretty significantly. And I think you'll get a lot more bang for the buck by just figuring out how to get a service mesh to do it for you. Because service mesh is really all about packaging up those patterns into one consistent, manageable thing with a control plane to sort of do all of the, this for you. And so, yes, there's some learning associated with that new control plane. Um, but, I, you know, our users are choosing to do that because they say, hey, you know, even as we get to four or five services, it's easier to learn that thing once than to repeat this four or five different times. And when you start talking about even scaling beyond that, dozens or hundreds of services or thousands of nodes running applications, then thinking about doing it yourself um, becomes a pretty significant burden. Well, so that leads into a question about um, how, uh, just about the operational model. Um, how much are developers responsible for uh, in a service mesh, and how much is a uh, a platform team or an operations team handling? Developers with a service mesh are responsible for mostly not doing a couple of things. The security component of a service mesh, that the service mesh is going to provide the authentication and manage whether an application trusts another application, uh, means that a service mesh wants to run right alongside your application and they're best if they can see the plain text. So application developers who are running with a service mesh right underneath them um, should go ahead and send things to out in plain text and know that the service mesh will take care of it for them. That pattern is repeated in a couple of other things. Application developers should generally not try to figure out how do I retry a request that failed or how do I describe the service where we might want to upgrade that service over there and pick between A or B? They should really just focus on getting the request down to the service mesh layer and letting it take care of all that sort of stuff. The platform operator is the owner uh, in all of our sort of real world use cases 
for deploying this, for um, uh, you know, getting it out, for choosing and, and operationalizing the service mesh. And then the final thing that we do see is that the platform operator then pushes back some benefits to the application developer. So that distributed tracing thing, right, we see platform operators saying, hey, application developer, here, here's the handle of the thing that you're trying to debug. And now you can get all this extra additional context, even from other applications that you don't have to worry about. So there are benefits that go back to the application developer. But because a lot of those security concerns and things like that, in our experience, the platform operators are the ones who answer for that anyways. That's why it's a natural fit for them to also own a lot of the, the operational control for it because they're also the ones who are going to care about keeping that healthy and, and uh, making it go. Can I chime in here, Terry? Um, I, I think that we find developers really like what they get, the benefits of a service mesh, but I think one of the core values of service mesh is you can remove the infrastructure burden from developers and make it so they can focus purely on writing business logic into the applications. That's obviously a nice thing for um, app devs. It's also a really nice thing for platform operators because I think it allows them to kind of make the infrastructure layer invisible and they can still define guardrails and some boundaries around what application developers are allowed to do and not to do without really hindering the developer experience. Well, so what, what is the optimal skill set then for a successful platform operator? What, what, do they, what do they need to know well to be successful operating in service mesh? Platform operator for service mesh, um, in our experience, is also going to be a platform operator for the Kubernetes platform that, that they run on top of. And so they need to have an ability to look at broad kind of microservices problems. So things that happen across different microservices and be able to sort of trace things down to associate any issue with the particular application that, that's causing the problem and then get kind of the, the experts of that one particular thing involved. So in that sense, the first thing that they need is technical breadth because platform operators in Kubernetes will have to deal with a lot of different applications. And so they'll have to be comfortable, you know, moving from, from thing to thing and diving in. Kubernetes really wants you to uh, try hard service mesh as well to tell it uh, what you want. This is like called a, a declarative configuration model. So it's a lot less about how you do a thing and a lot more about thinking about how to describe the end state of the system that you want and then letting, letting Kubernetes take care of it. So for instance, it's more about saying, I want five copies of this thing running then going and figuring out, okay, I'm gonna start one thing here, I'm gonna start another thing there, I'm gonna start another thing there. So a service mesh, a Kubernetes expert, thinks declaratively about declaring what they want the system to look like in the end. And then I think they also think about this as a, a control loop system. So how many copies of the thing do I need? I, you know, I, I said five, but in reality, what somebody with, a, with service mesh expertise would do is they would say, what are our goals, our service level objectives for this microservice? How do we measure those with a service mesh? And then if we're not meeting those, uh, what system do I use inside of Kubernetes to sort of scale things up to get more capacity to deal with that? Or if I'm going to do a security upgrade, what's my strategy going to be for making sure the application remains available while I'm changing some, some deployment parameters and stuff underneath? It is definitely a, a, an evolved and advanced and high-level 
uh, skill set for you know new microservices deployments in general. Which leads to uh, the obvious question: How um, how easy is it to find somebody with that skill set? What's the skills shortage situation? Assuming there is a skills shortage. Yeah, that's a great question, Terry. When I think about market maturity of Kubernetes and service mesh, I think I kind of look at the convergence. One end is the tooling um, and the technology itself advancing and starting to get um, easier to use, the UX getting better. And the other thing is the skills gap. I think there are a lot of people that are learning Kubernetes right now, but I think um, there aren't a ton of Kubernetes experts in the world just yet. Uh, Kubernetes is pretty new. Um, I think that's going to change quickly as you see Kubernetes start to become kind of the de facto for container orchestration in the industry. Um, you see a lot of people that are looking to get more and more familiar with um, containers and Kubernetes and service meshes and serverless and all that. Uh, I see the market skills gap closing pretty quickly as you see enterprises start to standardize around this technology stack, especially for greenfield deployments. Um, I think it's definitely complex technology, but it's getting simpler. And I think as the technology gets simpler and more and more people um, come into the field, you're going to see those two things converge and the skills gap is going to become less and less of a problem. Uh, service mesh as, as a service. Uh, what's the status of that? Is that something that organizations can begin to take advantage of today? Or some components of a service mesh can, I, I think, reasonably be be kind of consumed as a service. But there are some components where, like the especially the security component, where it's essential that they run right next to the application itself. So I don't think there's going to be pure as a service, service mesh kind of approaches um, because, because I think you will want to have something, some agent running, running right with, with your application. However, there are a bunch of these things about like intelligence around, okay, we've got all this extra information. What should we do now? A lot of that intelligence may involve fusing information from a lot of different sources your own cluster, uh, I think even things like the way the internet is behaving, or maybe a deployment or CI CD system like GitHub or GitLab kind of CI, like all this fusing of information, and then also extra intelligence around what you do with that information. And I think that that's something that could be a lot more reasonable um, to consume uh, as a service. And as far as with our customers, we've got some things that are available as a service, but I think that there's a bulk of this market that's sort of moving to Kubernetes that's trying to get their hands around one or two clusters and how to get a bunch of applications, especially greenfield applications, into one or two. So I don't think we've seen the big upswing um, in terms of people who are ready to consume this, any you know much of it as a service yet. Okay, that makes sense. And speaking of Greenfield, is that primarily what you're seeing? Or do you see an appetite for starting to um, get some of the benefits with legacy applications or integrating with legacy applications? So I, I think integration is definitely something we're working with a lot of customers right now on. 
I think what generally happens is it is definitely focused around building greenfield deployments, but then a, a lot of time integrating those back into things you need those greenfield deployments to talk to in your legacy stack. Um, I think you know you'll you'll start to see more brownfield deployments in the next year or two, but I think right now what we see is people building greenfield applications and then figuring out how to integrate those which was existing in their stack already. And what is working really well today, and where do you see people struggling the most? So that, that's a really good question. I think that uh, the nice thing about service mesh is it's a big toolbox that provides you a bunch of different capability. I think the bad thing about service mesh is it's a big toolbox that provides you a bunch of capability. And um, I think where we have seen customers fail is when they try to implement everything at once. I would recommend that's not a good way to get started with service mesh. Um, I think the way to get started is pick your top one or two use cases. You know, if that if you need um, traffic encryption, MTLS out of the box with service mesh is super easy. If you need to be able to figure out what's happening with some bottlenecks more easily, distributed tracing is an easy thing to grab out of the box pretty easily with service mesh. Um, I think we we tend to see service mesh become a hurdle when we see people try to adopt all the pieces at once. And if you go by the a la carte model and adopt the most important piece or two at a time, get those running along smoothly and then move on to the next thing. That's where we see people uh, have a pretty easy time getting started with a service mesh. Well, that makes sense. Start small and learn. That That's usually good advice for, for most. Right. It applies a lot of places other than service mesh. Right, right. Well, can you talk a bit about um, Aspen Mesh? What, um, what does Aspen Mesh bring to the table? Yeah, Aspen Mesh is a service mesh built around an open source uh, project called Istio. And we do some things outside of that to help people use Aspen Mesh and get started with service mesh. So the first one is um, we do spend a lot of time helping people figure out how to map this uh, to their applications, support, right? There are a lot of customers who like to have us available to help them figure out how to do this. One of the places that where we see a gap in existing open source service mesh projects uh, is around how you actually get the technology to map to your organization. And so this is a lot about kind of questions that, that we have around role and, hey, what does an application developer do versus what a platform operator does? Um, a lot of these things, you know, these, these service mesh toolboxes are just, hey, there's a bunch of tools. Everybody uses them. Um, and so we have uh, some layers on top that we do to, to help make this easier. So the first one is around making it so that that application persona can focus exclusively on describing the application itself. And the platform uh, owner can focus on where the application is running and how it's exposed to the outside world. And so the idea here is that the, you're separating people into their areas of expertise and importantly, you're decoupling the tooling and the Kubernetes configuration that they're dealing with uh, in a way so that they don't have to coordinate. And it's not because they can't possibly be made to coordinate and they hate each other and they just won't talk. It's because all of that coordination is an opportunity for a little bit of friction that can slow down uh, deployments of new applications or scaling applications or moving applications from here to there. And if you let that creep in, then you're giving up a lot of the value of microservices. So that's kind of the first is persona split. The other one is big team split. So if you are a very large enterprise, you don't want everybody to be able to do everything with the service mesh. 
So we have a layer that we offer on top of this that makes sure that team A can't define service mesh configuration that could interfere with team B's traffic. Or uh, conversely, things that are in the test sort of uh, scheme can't affect the production scheme, things like this. And this is really about, you know, just like Zach said, hey, bunch of tools, but how do we actually get an organization to use this in a way that lets them scale, go really quick, have apps focus on app logic, and have platform people be able to really get a handle on everything that's going on in the platform and be able to quickly solve problems and, you know, uh, grow the platform, grow the, the business that runs on it. And so um, when you're working with customers with Aspen, do you see patterns among those that get up and running and are successful quickly and those that struggle? So Terry, I think I, I go back to something I said previously, and I think people that tend to struggle are people that say, hey, service mesh looks neat. I'm going to take some of that. And people that are successful are ones that have a use case and say, hey, I think service mesh can help me address this problem I'm having. And if they use it to uh, as a tool to address a problem or lower a barrier, they usually are pretty successful with service mesh. If they look at it as a technology rather than an enabling tool, I guess is how I put it, um, often they can struggle with just trying to implement service mesh as a whole and then figure out how to add value with it. It, it is hard to get value if you don't know what value you're looking for up front, right? Yeah. That makes yep. sense. Yep. And there's a lot of buzz around service mesh right now. So we certainly have worked with customers that um, in, and talked to people in the industry that were looking to basically experiment with service mesh. And I think that uh, if you don't have a use case for service mesh, it's, it's hard to find value by just dropping it in and seeing what it does. You have to figure out a way that service mesh is applicable to what you're trying to do with your microservices environment. So not necessarily the just play with it and learn as you go model in this in this particular case. Um, how do you see the future? I mean, you've, you've both mentioned that you see this becoming easier to use, but looking, you know, one, two, three years out, do you have predictions about um, how many applications will be utilizing service mesh, what teams might look like, anything along those lines? How do you see the future playing out in the next few years? I think there's an interesting concept that's not totally new, but is kind of, a, I think, a really great refinement of where I think that this is going. And this is this concept um, that, that Zach actually threw my direction around uh, progressive delivery, um, which is like this, this idea that... Um, you try really hard to decouple application development from the way that it's deployed or exposed, or we say activated by users. And so some of this is happening at some organizations already. Blue Green is kind of a, an example of this, but like the thinking, the progressive delivery is like, hey, let's take that example and instead use it to convert the way that we think about applications, which is there are a bunch of different microservices that are sitting on a shelf and there's a separate business layer decision-making process which says which ones are, of these are, going to, are we going to run when and which ones are we going to expose to which users and how are we going to measure that to figure out which users are happier and uh, being successful with these applications and which users are not. And that could be because of features, it could be because of performance, it could be because of the where you're deploying it, you know, like are you close enough to the end user that they're getting a better response and so therefore they're happier. This is things like, 
hey, I can separate my really stable enterprise user that doesn't ever want an upgrade except for once every six months from my beta users that want the newest, fastest thing all the time. We think that microservices opens the door to this kind of thing. Kubernetes makes a lot of the deployment stuff faster. Service Mesh makes this something that, you know, I think you can really actually orient your whole application business around doing. Um, and so I think progressive delivery is probably going to be the big thing when we look back in, in a few years. We'll say, yeah, that's the thing that everybody is doing now that people are kind of talking about doing a little bit. And I think Service Mesh will be a big part of why you, you, you get to do that, why you'll be successful with that. Okay, well, that's fascinating. So uh, I've got some follow-up questions on that. Is that, um, are you pr talking about providing different experiences to different users, or are you really talking about baking in continuous learning into the application delivery process so that you're setting up a system where you are feeding a lot more information back to the development team about what's working, what's not working, so that they can um, iterate more effectively, closer to the customer experience? Yeah, it, it's a little bit of both. And the feedback loop of learning, I think that that's key here. What I think is going to happen is that there will be one layer of advantage, which is that the business side will be able to make a lot more agile decisions about what applications get deployed and exposed to who, under what conditions, without having to bother the application developers, right? Because application developers love to focus deeply on hard problems and sprints and increments and things like that. They hate disruption. So the first layer is that you decouple that so that um, businesses can adjust things and application developers don't have to worry about that. The second layer is being able to collect a lot more information on what was successful, what is important, and then use that to drive you know, product roadmap, which goes all the way back to the developers to say, hey, what are the most important things for you to work on building next based on a much deeper understanding and a much more rapid ability to iterate and experiment and learn a lot more about the applications that you're trying to provide. Interesting. Just digital transformation in general has, um, you know, uncovered, you know, a need for new operational models. It, it's covered the need for for new patterns, new ways of working, and um, so much of what you're talking about with service mesh in terms of consistency in security and observability in a platform operations team pulling back that the those infrastructure services for developers. Um, the ability to get those fast feedback loops in and learn so much of that is um, aspirational in a lot of digital transformation efforts. So it's it's interesting to see how many of those needs uh, Service Mesh seems to be fulfilling on. So, yeah, absolutely. And and harking back to Andrew talking a bit about progressive delivery, I think there's some organizations out there, uh, WeaveWorks, uh, CloudBees, LaunchDarkly that are that are using progressive delivery today in a way that they're they're doing a hundred deploys a day and they're having to do very few rollbacks and um, you know the, the digital transformation is not easy and um, containers and the technology surrounding it is not easy but when you can really start to um, you know harness it and get it humming along it's really impressive how much more quickly you can deliver um, new features to your users how much more quickly you can establish that learning or feedback loop you mentioned, Terry, 
and um, how much more certain you can be of how application changes are affecting your users, whether it's from a usability or security standpoint. It's, it's neat to see what some of the leaders in the industry are doing with this stuff right now. Great. And I think that's a great, great point to end on. Thank you both so much. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, Terry. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Terry. This was great. Thank you.